This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is public speaker, coach, and host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast, Jay Schiffman. Jay Schiffman interviews people on the topics of mental health, substance abuse and recovery, drug use and policy, to help end the stigma and normalize difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. Each year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. Jay Schiffman survived two suicide attempts himself, as well as an overdose, and now he works passionately to help others. Here is my conversation with Jay Schiffman. Jay Schiffman, welcome to the Story King podcast. Well, I am honored to be talking to the Story King himself. So thank you so much for having me. <laughs> awesome. Before we get started, I'd like to hear a little bit about your story. So can you tell me some more about who you are and what you do? Yeah, I am a speaker, a storyteller, and an event and podcast host. Uh, I started doing this work in in 2015, which it seems like uh, just forever ago. Um, you know, it was pre-COVID, and so uh, it, it, the last couple of years kind of made everything blur together, but uh, way pre-COVID. And I took this this gig full-time in 2019, uh, and, and, and that includes a couple of podcasts of my own, a podcast network. A uh, bunch of uh, speaking, storytelling events, and uh, book coming out, all, all sorts of good stuff. And when you first requested to come on my show, you, you wrote that you survived two suicide attempts <laughs> as well as an overdose. So you, you obviously you immediately got my attention. But, <laughs> <laughs> but before we talk, before we get into that, I mean, can you first walk us through what even initially brought you to that mental state where you wanted to end your life in the first place? I mean, it's a very serious thing, and a lot of people get to that place. But what, what's your story surrounding that? Well, uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I'm glad to hear that that was a that was an attention grabber. Usually, it is uh, when you <laughs> when you when you hear from someone uh, that they survived two suicide attempts and an overdose in a, in a roughly 24 hour span. Uh, you know, there aren't a lot of people with that story. So uh, glad to hear that it's still it's still catching catching eyes. Yeah. So, there, you know, you and I could do a, a, a hour, hour and a half on this alone. Right. Because that's the, the, the million dollar question how I got to that point. But the, the sort of short version of that is that I was misdiagnosed in, as a teenager with a, a very serious issue of mental health. Uh, that that it, that issue is is called bipolar disorder. Mm. Um, now I didn't have bipolar disorder. Uh, while I do have a whole host of things that I struggle with in terms of my mental health, when you treat somebody for a serious issue like that, like bipolar, and, and they don't have it, um, you're gonna see some uh, unintended uh, effects of that treatment. Mm. And and for me, what that looked like is first just an absolute inflammation of all of the other things that I do struggle with in terms of my mental health. And that, that includes anxiety and depression, 
uh, OCD, uh, ADHD, which is what started this whole thing in the first place. And unfortunately, that progressed from struggling just with that inflammation to misusing the medications that I was uh, I was given for for this the, this issue to a full blown uh, struggle with addiction. Uh, and, and that that happened over a number of years. That was not a slow process. I'm sorry. That was a slow process. It was not a not a, a, a sort of turnaround thing. But but by the time that we get to this point where I did survive the, this horrible couple of days, essentially I'd given up. I, I'd given up hoping that things were going to be better. Uh, I, I that was the summer of 2009. I, I had dropped out of school again for the second time the year before. Uh, I was living, <laughs> I was, I owned a trap house. Uh, this is just such a funny story for me to, e- even today, it, I laugh when I say that, like I owned a trap house. And, and for those who aren't familiar with that, that terminology, uh, I owned a house where people lived and hung out to use uh, drugs and mm. sell drugs. I owned the house. My parents bought it for me when I was uh, not quite uh, at this bottom of my struggle, thinking that. I, it would help me turn my life around and get myself together, so to speak. It did not, and 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 as as smart, downright brilliant people as they are, that was a terrible decision, uh, because that house uh, very quickly became a trap house. I was using a lot of drugs, uh, and and the people living with me that's that's all we had in common. You know, uh, we were barely paying the mortgage just to keep the lights on and all that kind of stuff with the drug money, um, and. <laughs> And uh, in this situation, I left for six weeks uh, to, to, to follow a band around the country. I was a huge hippie uh, and, and li- was living out of my car for six weeks following this band around going to music festivals. And for those who've ever been to a, to a music festival, you know, I wouldn't have stuck out there. I didn't stick out there, right? I mean, even at my worst moment, I was like so many other people in this environment. You know, a lot of drug use and but more than that, it's just nobody is weird at a music festival. You have the most, <laughs> you know, unique person. Uh, this is this is true. Like this is a person I knew at this festival walking around on stilts wearing a fairy costume and they fit right in. You know what I mean? Uh, that's just the environment. And, and, and so to, to go from one to another for, for six weeks, uh, you know, that included a nudist festival. It included, um, uh, basically a, a, a festival that was trying to be our generation's, um, Woodstock. And that was Rothbury. It, this was a big thing. And, and I felt at home. I felt loved. I felt, uh, accepted. And then I came home <laughs> and uh, went back to my life of, of living in and, and owning a, a, a trap house and having no job. And uh, I, mean, I, I had a job I didn't really go to. Uh, I wasn't in school. My fr- I'd alienated most of my friends. And so you can understand why I kind of went, I'm done with this. I, I don't want to keep doing this, you know? So, so that's how I got to that point. Now, you said you were misdiagnosed bipolar. And so were you addicted to the meds that they were giving you to treat bipolar or or no? Yes, that's exactly right. So uh, I was on over six or I was on six different medications every day. Uh, most all of them I was misusing. 
one of them in particular, I, I, I was addicted to. We know that for sure. Mm. Uh, I would be willing to bet that at least one or, or two of the others, I was, I, I fit the qualification for addiction. But that's hindsight being twenty twenty, right? At the time, uh, there was one in particular that I was for sure, you know, struggling with a a full blown addiction to. And are these antidepressants then that that you're being addicted to? So they were a couple different uh, qualifications of medication. They were benzodiazepines. They were antipsychotics, mm-hmm. and, and yes, they were they were um, these these antidepressants. The the, the one in particular mm-hmm. that was uh, the worst, the one that I was full blown addicted to, uh, was was called clonopin. It is called clonopin. Mm-hmm. Uh, and for listeners who don't know, clonopin is a really interesting drug, actually. Uh, it's it was developed as an anti seizure medication, and people uh, doctors doing research found that you know yes it helps with that but it actually does even more to help with anti uh, to, to to help keep down anxiety, and so I was taking uh, first you know a couple of these a day and that over a couple of years progressed to uh, if you've ever seen the show House. Uh, the way that he would pop his Vicodin, just kind of kick him back whenever he felt like it. Mm-hmm. That was me with handfuls of clonopin to the mm-hmm. point where by the end, uh, I was taking <laughs> I was taking more than what they recognized as the lethal dose of clonopin every day. That was just my day. So now what was the draw for clonopin? What, what did it make you feel like? Did it just really alleviate stress like you felt like uh, an alleviation and relief of whatever you were going through and then you had to obviously keep upping it that's exactly right so as i said before the inflammation of my underlying conditions uh as a guy with anxiety and depression you know putting this gasoline on the fire my depression became bottomless my anxiety became all-encompassing my ocd became not uh, having absolutely no ability to regulate these obsessive thoughts and by by connection uh these compulsions i was doing to try to address these obsessive thoughts um my adhd was to the point where i couldn't focus on something for more than a couple minutes at a time i was Mm. a mess uh and and clonopin more and more was helping me uh numb out isn't the right word because i i I was numb but but the clonopin didn't do that the clonopin helped me feel uh safer feel feel more comfortable with my life if that makes sense right and i would imagine that you must have crashed pretty hard the more and more stuff you took so that you would feel even greater anxiety when when the stuff wore off i mean is that safe to say or definitely and 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 the reason i was using so many other drugs on 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 the side of my prescriptions is Mm -hmm. when that's your life every day there really is only one thing that i felt comfortable using uh that could help me and that was cannabis and so i smoked all day every day now there are other drugs. That, luckily for me, heroin would have been the perfect answer for me at that time. Uh, but I have a thing about needles. Thank God. <laughs> so I never, I never picked up uh, heroin, even though I was hanging out with people that were using heroin a lot. Uh, I never was interested, and so I, I never got to that. Uh, I did, however, uh, the last six months or so before I, I hit my my worst, you know, the the, the point where my life changed. Uh, I got really into cocaine because when mm. you are this level of messed up already, and people are like, "Let's party!" Well, <laughs> it takes a lot 
to to then raise you even more. And so cocaine was the answer. Uh, the other things I was really into were were uh, psychedelics because you know when your life is this horrible, getting out of your head for a while is a pretty appetizing uh, solution. And so for me, uh, LSD was never my thing. It didn't really work well for me, which is actually quite common. Um, you know, not every drug affects everybody the same. And for me, LSD didn't do anything. Uh, but I got really into psilocybin, uh, grew my own, was just a huge fan of mushrooms. Uh, and, and on top of that was doing a lot of DMT, which is a very, very mm -hmm. strong psychedelic. Now that that's interesting because you said you, <laughs> you said you're also taking antipsychotics, but you're also doing psychedelics. <laughs> yeah. So you're causing something that's potentially supposed to treat like hallucinations and stuff like that. And then you're taking drugs to actually cause them that's right although wow. i will say <clears throat> i will say that for me psychedelics never came with heavy hallucinations and okay. again that is something that um i have friends let me refer to that though to say the dmt did dmt and and mm -hmm. a couple salvia and stuff like that did but for me the psilocybin was not a hallucinatory drug it was more of a changing my mindset and helping me leave behind my everyday worries uh mm -hmm. but you're not wrong the dmt was uh sort of counteracting this the very drugs i was taking right and i you know, if I'm not mistaken, DMT is a naturally occurring thing that happens throughout all of nature, including in, in humans as well. In small doses, your 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 brain, I think, produces DMT. Am, am I am I understanding exactly that right? Correct? Yep. And and you can you can gather it from from uh, flowers essentially uh, at high doses uh, that will produce. Uh, the most intense psychedelic experience you will have for roughly five to 15 minutes, depending on your dose. It's not something I would recommend people try lightly. Uh, I mean, the strongest, the second strongest experience I've ever had with psychedelics was on DMT. Salvia was number one. And salvia, from people I've talked to who also used to experiment with salvia, I've never heard of anybody having a good trip on salvia. It's just intense. DMT, it can be positive, but it is a very strong chemical uh, and, and much harder to go with the flow with than, than something like psilocybin. Yeah, I mean, there's been a lot of studies with DMT, like lab controlled studies and where people I mean, the most fascinating thing is the hallucinations and that people have common hallucinations, which I think is really bugged out, you know, uh, and kind of uh, makes you question the whole nature of reality when people are talking about seeing little elves and angels and all sorts of uh, different entities during these trips. Uh, have you ever had any uh, anything like that go down? Oh, man, I'll tell you what, if you would ask that question to, to Jay circa 2008, 2009, <laughs> uh, the things I could have told you, I, you know, I, I, I fully agree with, wh with where you're going with this question in the sense that there is sort of to the Timothy Leary and Ken Kesey aspect of psychedelics, you know, there, it is a door that is that you are opening in your own mind that allows you to see things that or, or, or feel things and be aware of things at an even deeper level that you aren't every day. And, mm -hmm. and that was the piece that I was chasing, that exact piece, because I felt so horrible in my body and the reality that I was living that when somebody was like, let's try to find this other, other, you know, plane of existence, I was like, sign me up. Let's do it today, tomorrow, and the next day. <laughs> let's never not do this, right? Because nowhere is as bad as this. Right. And, 
That's fascinating. So now, how old were you when you owned the, the trap house? You said your parents <laughs> bought you this house. So how old were you at this time? 21, uh, 21, 21 to 23. Yep. All right. And you were struggling and they thought that this might be a way out to like what give you responsibility, something to look after. Yeah, it was a very old school thinking. And, and mm -hmm. you know, you have to remember that there was not a, a, an understanding or acknowledge that I was struggling with addiction, right? There was a belief mm. that what I had was a serious issue of mental health and that I was seeing a therapist who was telling me and my parents that we were going to get this thing under control. And so in their defense, if you're hearing that, but you're still seeing me sort of, you know, sinking, I guess if you came up in that generation and I'm younger, I, I can't really, uh, I can't really comment on that, but to, to, to hear this idea that, well, we just got to help him buckle, you know, pull himself up by his bootstraps and all that kind of, kind of stuff. I guess that makes sense. You know, again, hindsight being 2020, it was just a terrible decision, but I, I can kind of see where they would have been coming from. Right now back to the psychedelics. Because questions just keep coming to me. <laughs> I love it. Let's we could talk about psychedelics all day, man. I'll strap in. Let's do it. <laughs> I don't want to talk about it all day, but with psychedelics, I mean, I, I have family members have done psychedelics. I haven't, you know, done them myself. But I, I, my father told me a story when he was young. He was a hippie, and he was telling me him and his friend were doing mushrooms, and they and they took too many. And he says he remembers just looking at the orange and being convinced. He's like, oh my god, this is God. <laughs> and he said they're just like looking at this orange, you know, and being convinced of this thing. But he did tell me that he didn't feel that, that it was uh, addictive. So do you feel psychedelics and even antipsychotics? Were, were you addicted to those? Because I, I feel like they're in like a different class, you know, that then than like antidepressants, anti-anxiety medication, or are they all kind of like lumped in the same both there. So you could talk about psychedelics first, the uh, the addictive quality of them, or if they don't have an addictive quality. Yeah. So something really important to to, to point out, and I, and I love this question because this is something this is something I nerd out on, and I don't get to really talk about that often on interviews. Uh, I, for, and I want to say this very clearly: I'm not a doctor. I have my BA in psychology, mm -hmm. um, but I am not. Uh, I I didn't go on to graduate school or anything like that. So uh, that is the caveat I, I give this with. But by the 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 definition in the DSM five, which is the Diagnostic Manual for Mental Health. Uh, there are certain qualifications that a person has to uh, to fit or, or to achieve, achieve to be given the diagnosis of addiction. And because of that, there are certain substances or things in our everyday world that by definition cannot be addictive. And, mm -hmm. and what I mean by that, and, and the, the, the thing that I specifically love talking about this topic on uh, the, 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 the substance is cannabis. By definition, cannabis cannot be addictive because hmm. it does not uh, hit enough of these qualifications. However, there is a separation that needs to be made between addiction and um, uh, not addiction, but um, uh, like compulsion. Com well, more reliancy, I think, is the mm. better to wait it right. So in the way we traditionally think about in the way we diagnose addiction, psilocybin and other uh, other things like that, LSD, all of this cannot be addictive because there is not the physical property, which is what I went through with my um, my pills 
of withdrawal. And without mm. that physical property, you cannot be given that diagnosis of addiction. However, there is another category that this use can fall into, and we call that misuse. And what that means is that 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 category of misuse and users, you can't see me, or users, listeners, you can't see me doing this, but my, my hands are very wide apart. It goes from everything from that kid who binge drinks on the weekend, right? That is classic misuse. That's not how you're supposed to use alcohol all the way to bordering on and then kind of going into what we call addiction. So in that sense, I was uh, misusing psilocybin at that time. I was not using it in its intended purpose when you think about, let's say, indigenous populations who used to use it or still do as a very religious uh, experience. And, and as an adult, this is something I've done from time to time in a very healthy and uh, sort of spiritually awakening use of psilocybin. That is not at all what I was doing in my college days. Instead, as I was saying before, I was using it as a as a, a, a medicine. I was using it as a, as a crutch to get out of my life every day. So in that sense, is it addictive? No. I mean, it, by definition, it is not. However, that is not giving uh, it a free or people who use it in an unsafe or unmindful way, a free pass, because that can be incredibly dangerous. And, and you hear some of these awful stories of somebody taking what we call like a heroic dose. And, and for those who don't understand, you may have heard this term microdosing, and this is something mm -hmm. I, I, I love and I do actually myself. Uh, a microdose of, of psilocybin is roughly 0.1 grams, right? For the average person to achieve the sort of uh, psycho psychedelic properties of psilocybin. It's anywhere from low tolerance people like myself, about 1.5 grams, so significantly more, all the way up to like 3.5 or 4 grams. A mm. heroic dose is like 4 to 5 to 6 grams, which will blow your mind wide open. And so that is not a thing anyone should do except in a in a very safe environment. You know, we're talking, there are people now who do this uh, by in, in therapeutic settings, and, and that's a very different uh, a very different uh, setting where someone can be led through a life-changing event to help really address past trauma and um, you know these 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 repressed uh, memories that are just too painful to deal with in any other setting. But you know these horror stories of somebody taking five or six grams of psilocybin and then being found wandering naked on the freeway. I mean that is what we're talking about here, right? Mm. That is. It's it, just because it's not addictive doesn't mean it's not incredibly scary when used improperly or, or unsafely. So, uh, but but I, I will caution that to say, you know, that's not the drug's fault, right? The the mushrooms didn't force you to do that. That was a person's choice to use in a very unsafe way. So, so to your question, I know I went way off there, but again, no, it's something no, it's I good. really love. No, I was not addicted to to my my uh, psychedelic of choice. The antipsychotics is a different different story because those properties are that the properties that make up these these pills are in some cases very addictive. Uh, as I said before, I was flat out addicted to to one of my med medicines. I would be willing to bet that I was addicted to at least one more, but I can't say that with, with certainty. Uh, and, and that is a very different answer than the psilocybin. Now, you're talking about psilocybin and even DMT can be a positive experience. Is, is that true? A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Okay. And that it's even 
used as treatment. I've read this too in, in articles that they're using it to treat. Is is it like terminal illness or or is it like depression? From you know, it's all the above. All the above. Uh, okay. So it's actually been used that way for. I, I mean, we're talking indigenous populations and in other places on this earth uh, f- since since it was discovered. You know, the dawn of man. However, here in the United States, uh, this became an underground thing starting back in the uh, the fifties, I believe, might have been the sixties. Mm-hmm. Um, and for the last 50, 60, 70 years, it's been an underground thing where you could find people, mostly. You know, we're talking California, we're talking Oregon, Washington, who mm-hmm. would help you go through these experiences experiences uh, in, in a safe and sort of therapeutic way. Now, you know, sort of Western medicine is catching on to that and you're seeing it legalized in certain municipalities for this use. Very famously, you know, uh, Oregon was the first to do this. Washington, D.C. was right behind them. And you are able now to sign up for uh, therapy that is that uses some of these uh, medicines. Uh, psilocybin is coming quickly down the line. Ketamine was before it. It was kind of the the, the Trojan horse, so to speak, of people who didn't understand. Um, let me put this a different way. People who would have been flat out against using drugs in therapy were being sort of uh, welcomed with ketamine and then all of a sudden going, Oh wait, this is a drug. It was it was very interesting to see how that was uh, used politically. Uh, mm. But now that you know we're seeing the positive uh, responses to these things, you're seeing this in many many different places. Uh, and there's actually a place here in Philadelphia uh, that is teaching therapists how to use psilocybin in their in their practices, uh, and, and it's very interesting. And I think that you know if somebody was to listen to this interview ten years down the road, uh, or even let's say even five years down the road, they would be shocked to know that this wasn't just always a thing, uh, because <laughs> it is moving so rapidly. Wow. That's very interesting. So, I mean, so there's a street component to it because it's not legal everywhere, but it's legal in, with, within certain municipalities. Now, you said after Oregon, you said Washington, D.C. followed it. Did you mean Washington State or D.C.? No, Washington, D.C., our nation's oh. capital, uh, was the second city in the country to officially uh, allow psilocybin therapy. Oh, really? Yeah. Wow. So let's talk a little bit then about the nature of addiction itself, because from my understanding, addictions form sort of as uh, this is just my my layman's understanding, right, that that addictions form from unhealthy ways to sort of self-medicate. You know, in other words, if you're dealing with trauma or negative emotions that you want to avoid, the high from that substance provides the temporary escape. So in that regard, substance abuse and misuse is really symptomatic of a greater mental health issue. Is that fair to say? That's very fair to say. And, and, and so there's sort of two points you just made that are excellent. The oh. first is that um, it is it is um, a symptom of a, of a bigger mental health issue. That is the way this thinking is going, which is about time. Uh, we used to separate addiction and mental health, which is just ridiculous. Um, the two go hand in hand. Uh, I personally have never met anyone struggling with addiction that didn't also have issues with their mental health. Uh, it is It is a mental health issue. It's a flat out you know, full stop, addiction is a mental health issue. The other point you made, which is a very good one, is that it is a, in many cases, a response to trauma. Uh, that is the number one, as far as I am aware, and, and as far as uh, the, the research seems to show, that is the number one cause of addiction is is sort of a uh, past trauma. I wouldn't say cause, that's not the right word. Correlation would be a better way to put that. Mm-hmm. However, 
Uh, I'm going to parrot something that I've heard said multiple times by people way, way smarter than me that I love. And that is, we don't know the full algorithm of what produces addiction, right? So if you think of it as a uh, sort of a calculus equation, we know on one end, it's, you know, equals addiction. And we know on the other end is a lot of variables. We don't know how many variables and to put this even more, uh, to make it even more difficult, we don't know to what extent the ver- the, ide- the variables identities that we are aware of are sort of multiplied, right? So it could be 5x, it could be 13x equal plus 9y, right? We have mm-hmm. no idea. And so because of that, and, and again, these thinkers that, that I'm, I'm sort of parroting here, which include my ultimate hero, a guy named Carl Hart out of Columbia, uh, also Gabor Mate up in Canada, uh, Dr. D. Jaffe out in California. Some of these thinkers are basically saying, look, until we figure out all of these variables and to what extent, to what power we are multiplying these variables for anyone to look down on somebody struggling to anyone be like oh you just have to do this is silly because we don't actually know we can't say with any certainty however to your point there are a lot of variables we already do know and trauma is without a doubt the biggest one we are aware of uh especially childhood trauma, it's not a one-to-one correlation, but it's pretty darn high. If somebody struggled or went through childhood trauma, the the, uh, chances of them uh, struggling with some form of uh, an addiction is is pretty, pretty good. Um, We also know environment is a big part of it. Your genes are a big part of it. And then to a much smaller extent, that um, that that chemical or that action, right? Because we're also talking about things like uh, you know working out addiction is is a big one that doesn't get talked about enough. Or uh, uh, you know there are people who struggle with things like sex, uh, and I know that the, the sort of every other day the jury is out on whether that's an actual addiction. I'm gonna lump it in here in terms of uh, the way that people you know will sometimes over medicate with uh, the the high of an orgasm is 100 percent something we can we can say is an addiction uh and and the actual variable itself is much smaller than these other correlations but it is it is a piece you know i uh, me personally uh, as a guy in recovery I am able to have a healthy relationship with alcohol uh, and, and, and cannabis and psilocybin now as an adult. And, and I think that if I had never been put on these pills, would I have struggled with addiction is a giant question. I don't have an answer to uh, because these other things are not triggers for me. And so if I had gone my whole life just having you know a drink or, or smoking cannabis mm-hmm. or whatever, would I have struggled? I, I, I don't know. Um, but the answer there shows me that you know, these pills were at least in some respect, part of that variable, part of that equation. Yeah, it's very interesting you brought up because I I was going to bring this up as my next question, but you kind of started talking about it. I had a guest on who was talking about her struggle with food addiction, and she was talking about the psychology behind it and when it started. And again, it was kind of a response to trauma and it was something that brought her comfort and it became this this addiction you had mentioned sex and how people will rely on orgasm but it's you were talking about addiction and how by definition there are some things that just can't be called addiction so so what are your thoughts on behavioral addictions that don't involve substances are they considered less serious you know for example gambling you know it could ruin your life but it's not going to kill you loan sharks aside you know do you have any 
experience on that front with behavioral addictions? And, and what are your thoughts? Because you're somebody who struggled with actual substances. You know, does it annoy you when people say they're addicted <laughs> to a behavior, you know, rather than something that's actually, you know what I mean? I, I, I love this question. And it, I, I'll tell you this, you get 20 people who, who spend their days like I do thinking about addiction in a room, and they're going to have 50 <laughs> opinions on, on, on this question. This is the big question, right? Because, uh, and it's why every other day we get a different person who says, yes, sex is an addiction. No, sex is not an addiction. So the food one is such an interesting question, because by definition, we need food to live, right? It, it is not a thing that you can you can sort of qualify qualifies an addiction. That being said, I know plenty of people who would, would would say and swear up and down that they are addicted to at least certain types of foods. And so I, I will say sort of two answers to, to what you just asked. Number one, no, I never get uh, annoyed with people who say that their their activity or, or something other than a typical uh, case that we talk about of addiction is there is something they're addicted to. Not at all. Uh, the only thing I ask when I'm talking to these people is um, they do so sort of mindfully and they do so in a very a compassionate way. And I'll give a quick example. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was having lunch with someone who worked in an addiction uh, a center and we were talking about addiction. She said, you know, I, I got to tell you, I know what addicts go through uh, because I used to be a reporter and my beat was the crime beat. And I used to report on things like heroin every day. And so I'd wake up my, uh, at the middle of the night and I'd check my phone to see if there was any, um, you know, any breaking news about, about heroin. And, you know, I, I, so I know, I know what you go through. And I looked her right in the eyes. I was like, that is the most offensive thing you could say to somebody <laughs> like me that, oh, you, oh no, you checked your phone in the middle of the night. You know what my life was like. No, you don't. Come on now. Don't, don't ever say that again. <laughs> so, so in that respect, don't do that. Don't be like, oh, you know, because I do this thing, I know exactly what a heroin a person struggling with heroin addiction feels like. No, you don't. But that's okay because you can have these experiences and they are just as important and they are just as meaningful without trying to be on the level I was on or whatever the case is. So, yes, I fully acknowledge and, and respect those who struggle with some kind of experience based addiction. On the other end, I would say that, like I said earlier, there are so many people smarter than me who wrestle with this every day. You know, my expertise is not the science behind this. Uh, and, and those people are sort of stumped by this. Um, and, and again, you get a bunch of us in a room. We're all going to have different opinions on this. So uh, it is a constantly evolving uh, landscape in addiction, period, but especially in what we kind of think of as, as experience-based addictions. You know, I, I personally have been skydiving a couple times, and I know people who go weekly, and I get it. The rush you get from the skydiving uh, wasn't that dissimilar to me, to what I felt like, you know, when I was when I was struggling with addiction. I have friends who I used to work in politics running campaigns. And the the rush I felt on election night was familiar to me. And mm -hmm. I have friends who that's their job. And they tell me that one of the reasons they do it is because of that feeling. I think that's a little dangerous. But at the same time, I, you know, I wouldn't really call them addicted. So like it, it's a very murky waters uh, area, uh, but it is constantly evolving and something I, I think is fascinating. And I'm surprised neither one of us mentioned this because it's always the big word when you talk about addiction. And I think also gives at least some explanatory power for behavioral addictions is dopamine, right? That, that the reward system in, in your brain. So these behaviors, they know 
for example, uh, release lots of dopamine and orgasm, for example, right. you know, uh, releases a large amount of dopamine, just like a lot of drugs do. And is that also part of the addictive quality of both drugs and behaviors? Because then if they're if it's really about the dopamine, then behaviors can be considered a drug, <laughs> you know. A hundred percent. And that's what the people who, you know, w would say things like sex is, is an addiction would say that what you, you're not actually addicted to the aspect of sex. You're not addicted to the, to the action of sex. What you are addicted to is the dopamine release that that is giving you. And in some cases, that is the actual response is let's help you find a different release for this that is a, that is not as connected to such risky behaviors, right? I mean, if, if you're somebody who, uh, let's say you and your wife are, are, are monogamous and as most relationships are and you know you're sneaking around behind her back because to you you can't get through the day without going you know uh, hiring a sex worker and, and getting that release for to get that dopamine I would say that that by definition fits the qualifications for addiction because you are doing things that you know you shouldn't be doing to achieve that that status that you're looking for right and you I'm just assuming have probably hid that action before and all these kind of things that the DSM-5 makes you check off to say, yes, you're, you're, you're struggling with addiction. So by that definition, you are struggling with addiction. However, the answer just uh, the same way it can be for, for drugs is let's figure out another way to, number one, find a, a safer uh, way for you to get some dopamine release, but also number two, dig deeper and say, what hole are you trying to fill with this behavior? Because mm. that is the bigger question that I always try to ask in, in, in the times I do coach it, which is a thing I don't do as much anymore. Um, but when I do select uh, someone to work with, that's usually the question we're actually trying to figure out, which is what are you trying to accomplish with this action? And what, what hole are you trying to fill? Because somebody who uses cocaine day in and day out, is very different than somebody who shoots heroin. They're very different responses in the body. They're very different responses in how they affect your life. And so you cannot treat them the same way. I mean, and you can't treat every person struggling the same way. We're all very different people. And what I was looking for is gonna be different than what my buddy who's struggling is is looking for. So uh, that's where a lot of these addiction treatment centers kind of go off the rails is they think, oh, this program works for everybody. Eh, not really. You know, we all need this very person-centered level of care to get better. Right. What's interesting is you said the same exact question as my guest who was struggling with, uh, who had struggled with food addiction. What hole are you trying to fill? So is that something that that you commonly hear, like in therapy sessions, because it, you you both said the same exact question. So is that is that a common question? That is the prevailing question that that is now. Uh, and, and I, I sort of said the buzzword right before uh, person centered um, treatment. That is the 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 uh, prevailing question that is being asked now is okay. what what is the whole what what are we trying to figure out here? How are what are you trying to heal yourself from essentially? Before I forget, I wanted to ask you because I hear this thrown around this term a lot, but but for people who don't really know what it is. Uh, Cognitive behavioral therapy. Do you do you have any experience with that and what that even means? Yeah. So, <laughs> C, uh, CBT, as they call it, uh, cognitive behavioral therapy, is sort of become the prevailing 
uh, if you go to a therapist, many are going to be coming from a CBT focused uh, uh, treatment um, regimen. And and it is, I don't want to, I don't want to go dive down this so far, because we'll lose a lot of listeners by trying to talk about the science here. <laughs> but but basically, it, it sort of combines multiple aspects of, of care, and is trying to it's really focusing more on the individual person, as as the name suggests. Even the behaviors that are being uh, expressed, I think, is the best word to use there. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and and that's where sort of what we were talking about before comes into play, which is that you know, actually, let me even give a better example because this is this is personal, and it's always better to give personal personal examples. So, as a guy with OCD, right. Uh, we focus in common society a lot on the uh, compulsion aspect of OCD, right? That's what uh, OCD, for those who don't know, obsessive compulsive disorders. So the the uh, compulsion piece is just what you can see on the surface, right? Think of uh, Monk. I love the show Monk. It was one of my favorites. It, it, it actually presented uh, OCD in an okay way. It wasn't great, but it, but it wasn't terrible. Um, a lot of the times there, it's very kitschy. You know, you get the character who just flips on and off light switch a lot and, and washes their hands 10 times a day and all that kind of BS. But, but Monk actually tried to get to, uh, the bigger piece, which isn't the compulsions. It's the obsessive thoughts that motivate the compulsions, right? Mm -hmm. So, just dealing with the actions themselves in the OCD doesn't help me at all, right? Yes, I know I don't need to do this thing and it doesn't actually make a lot of sense, but this obsessive thought I'm having is telling me that I should. And so if you ignore the the um, obsessive thoughts before you in, in therapy, you're not really doing anything. You're just telling a person don't do that. And I, I know that from being around other human beings. And so CBT, we're trying to address the, the cognition that is going on in these moments, right? What is it that is motivating these behaviors? That's the bigger question. So is this where, sort of where mindfulness comes in, where you're trying to think about your thoughts? That's a, that is, uh, yeah, so mindfulness is a, is a big piece, uh, I would say, as someone who is a big believer in mindfulness, uh, that is, it's a, it's a big, it should be a big piece to any healthy uh, regiment in terms of self-care and, and self, uh, it, putting yourself first is a really good way to describe it, because when you're doing mindful things, uh, even though some of my mindful techniques that I do and and and, uh, and I practice and I actually teach on, I, I have a I have a, a session up on a on an educational website about mindful adding mindfulness to your day and your week. But mm-hmm. some of the things that I do are on the surface very other people focused, and that's great. That it's a wonderful thing. We should all be doing more things like gratitude, right? At their base, what they're doing is making you feel good. They're they're making you focus on yourself, uh, and there's a, there's a, a lot of science behind that, right? I mean, if you uh, let's say you want to think you're a good person, of course we all want to think we're a good person. You don't do that by just telling yourself you're a good person twenty times a day, because then you're <laughs> like, all right, but my actions don't show that. I don't, I'm not right. actually a good person. 
So the right way to go about trying to be, or to truly believe that you are a good person is by being a good person. And so when we build things like gratitude, which is a beautiful form of mindfulness, into our day, yes, it's helping other people. But in doing so, you're going, yeah, all right, I feel pretty good right now. I am a good person. I do these things for other people, and that makes me feel good. I see. Now, you mentioned there was a stigma surrounding drug abuse, misuse, mental health issues. Well, what does that stigma look like in everyday life? And why do you even think it's there? <laughs> well, so, <laughs> so I'm so, first of all, I'm so glad you asked this question. And the second, the answer to that is I'm going to turn it right back around on what you just said. So when you think about the word abuse, right? Think about other ways we use the word abuse in our everyday life. And, and mm -hmm. you know, we're talking spousal abuse, which is a horrible, horrible thing. As a, as a married person, I can't imagine ever, ever, you know, treating my wife that way, right? Drug use does not really fit into there. You're not abusing anything. There's no violence involved. You know, the only person who's being hurt by this, if in, 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 in a very classical sense, in the very uh, sort of physical sense, is you. And yet we continue to use words like drug abuse. Mm. Um, the drug's not hurting you. It's not physically beating you up. Uh, your actions are harmful. There's no doubt about it. And if if your use has progressed to an unsafe level, like I was saying before about misuse. And so those of us who do what we do are trying to get rid of that word drug abuse and replace it with misuse. Because number one, it's not the drug's fault. Like I was saying before, heroin never, or, or I don't want to use, the, I'm going to use an example of something I used a lot. So cocaine never picked up a gun, put it to my head and said, snort me. That was just not how that works. I made choices that that included uh, using cocaine in an unsafe way. Number two, there was no violent actions. The only violence that ever happened in my life around uh, my, my, my drug use uh, was in the rare occurrences uh, where, where acquiring uh, or selling of drugs went south. And that has nothing to do with the drugs themselves. That's the way that we treat them, namely prohibition. And so there's a reason that you know uh that this was thought of this way and, and i gave a ted talk on this actually in in june uh and you and i again we could spend an hour doing this the history of this is fascinating uh of the the, the intentional correlation between substances uh namely here we're talking about things like opium back in the late 1800s and in, in in the early 1900s cocaine and heroin and and to a certain extent cannabis as well um with populations that that the white that that the U.S. did not want to be seen as uh, sort of, um, you know, uh, uh, amongst common decent folk. And so we're, we're normally talking here, of course, about uh, black and brown Americans. And that is where a lot of this stigma comes from. And you you hear a lot of these things tossed around today. And if you actually think about them for you know a second, you're like, wait, that doesn't make a lot of sense. Well, it, it never made sense. It was kind of made up out of whole cloth. And, and again, that's a, I've done entire interviews just on this topic because I think it is so incredibly fascinating. But that's where the stigma comes from. And, and to your question of why we even know it's there, you know, think about the ways we just talk about 
drug users in our society, right? You know, if every time we talked about somebody who drank alcohol, the way we talk about people who use heroin, <laughs> nobody would go to bars because nobody would want to be associated with that thing. You know, and and to again bring up my hero uh, Carl Hart, he talks. He himself is a is a, a heroin user. I know plenty of people who use heroin safely, but we never hear about them because that stigma against heroin is so strong that even I, as somebody who works in this community, when I think about heroin, I think about the person on the very end of the spectrum who is the people I see when I do outreach in homeless communities. So. That is where this stigma really has a negative effect. You know, yeah, a guy like me in recovery, I can take it, right? You want to you wanna call me a junkie or some BS like, I mean, I'm, I, I don't know why you'd want to do that. I think I'm a pretty nice guy, but if that's what you wanted to do, fine. But I'm not, we're not talking about me and you. We're talking about Jay back in 2008 who didn't tell anyone uh, that he was struggling the way he was struggling because of the way we talk about people like me. We didn't, you know, that is why I do what I do to help end this stigma. It's not for me today. It's for me 12 years ago. So it's a matter of narrative and semantics, you feel like what we're how we're speaking about it is what's kind of causing the stigma in the general public at large. How we're speaking about it and, and, and quite frankly, how we're legislating it. You know, again, we treat these things very differently in our state houses and in, in, in the Capitol. Uh, and, and a lot of it is not based on science. In fact, none of it is, is based on science. Uh, it's built on this foundation. This may sound conspiracy theory, and, and that's why I'm always trying to give this sort of caveat that mm -hmm. we're really lucky that many of our, our legislators from like the late 1800s and early 1900s who built the foundation of drug policy that is still in place today were overt with a lot of their uh, a, a lot of the excuses that now sound a bit conspiratorial, but you have to remember that back in that day, it wasn't uh, it wasn't considered taboo to be openly discriminatory, right? It wasn't considered taboo to to talk about people in a way that now would would curdle your your blood. Um, and and when you think about guys like this is a name I love dropping. His name is Harry Anslinger. He was the head of uh, the first uh, head of what we now think of as the DEA, uh, who was censured on the floor of Congress for being too racist. Now imagine how racist you have to be to be right. censured on the floor of Congress. For, for being racist. And this was a guy who created many of our drug policy laws. So uh, it, it, it is fascinating to me um, that we don't spend more time digging down to this foundation and realizing that most of it is made of sand. Uh, and, and But, you know, that's something we as people are not good at is sort of recognizing that there were errors in our ways and, and saying, you know, we got to go back and fix this. We just keep building on top of it. And, and unfortunately, that's led to a lot of laws and policy that just doesn't make much scientific sense. And is there other things the general public needs to know about addiction other than what you already mentioned? Or is that really the key issue is just we have to start speaking about it differently and refer and like it's very interesting. Like you said, the word abuse, and I never thought about it, but you're right. When you hear the word abuse, you're thinking of physical abuse, whether it's sexual, whether it's beating someone up. But that's the that's the image you get when you say the word abuse. And that's the word we have att we've attached after drug for right. people who are addicted to drugs. And that's very fascinating that that we've done that, you know, and we see that in the media all the time whether it's uh, you, you want to paint a certain group of people a certain way, you just keep 
calling them this thing, <laughs> you know, until yeah. until it just drops into the psyche of the populace. You know what I mean? So is there anything else the general public or, or is that really the main thing the general public needs to be aware of? So there's two things. Number one, um, I'm really glad you pointed out that sort of painting of 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 individuals or in many cases, entire communities. There's there's something that is really fascinating. And if you do this work, you start picking up on it and seeing it everywhere. Uh, I'm going to use a very famous case right now to, to sort of illustrate this. And, and there's going to be people screaming when they hear this, but uh, <laughs> this is just the flat out truth. You'll see a lot when somebody is unfortunately uh, a life is taken by, let's say, law enforcement. Uh, mm-hmm. And you're seeing this right now with George, the, the prosecution of the other police officers who, who murdered George Floyd. Mm-hmm. A defense that they use is the drugs in his system. Now, there's kind of a couple points about this. Number one, uh, in this case, I actually believe that there were drugs in the system. However, in many cases, and you'll see this in the media, and I really appreciate that, that a lot of our media outlets are starting to say this. They didn't say it in the past. They're starting to, which is, you know, the prosecution alleges that it's because there was PCP in his system. And by the way, no PCP was found in his system, right? So so the media is starting to do that more often. That used to be a thing they never did. They would just say the prosecution says that they didn't actually murder him, that he he, he overdose or something and leave it there. But now they're actually throwing in that other line of, and by the way, toxicology reports showed there was no drugs in his system. So that's something to be aware of if they say it or if they don't, because this is alleged in almost every case. You see this in in, in everyday law um, cases where some where the, the defense will allege, oh no, you know, it wasn't the, the husband who beat her, it was the, the the drugs in her system that caused the death, right? And in many cases, that's fl- not only is it flat out false, but the autopsy doesn't even confirm that there were drugs in the system. So next time you read that, see if your media outlet confirms or denies it because it doesn't it doesn't matter if there is or not. I mean of course it matters if there is or not what is kind of more important is if your media outlet is willing to say and by the way the autopsy showed that, that there were actually drugs in the system or there were not um and also uh there are some drugs that can cause an overdose there are many that cannot if you ever read something like um oh and there was cannabis in their system you <laughs> cannot physically die you would have to smoke so many joints you know I mean think about the people that we joke about who smoke weed all day every day right snoop dogg is going to be lived to be 100 if he's still alive <laughs> you're fine you cannot overdose on cannabis so number one look for that the next time you read that and again someone like me i notice this day in and day out our media is getting better but it's not quite there number two is yes you know it is incredibly important to point these things out and to talk about how we address and we talk about uh, substance misuse uh, substance misuse and substance users something that a lot of people uh, are just now sort of becoming aware of is that we the the people my generation and and especially the generation older I'm 35 so millennials and older were uh in many cases either intentionally misled or unintentionally misled on simple facts about substance use at all and so I see this when I'm when I am coaching um perfect example I was working with a family last year and the mom came to me and she said you know my son really is struggling with uh, uh, uh addiction and I said, oh, oh, you know, tell me about it. And she's like, well, he's smoking weed. I said, okay, what else? And went, no, that's it. And I said, excuse me? Uh, I was like, first off, you can't be addicted to weed. But second off, 
not all use is misuse. You mm-hmm. know, if 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 every time somebody had a drink at a bar, we freaked out and we're like, oh my god, they're misusing alcohol. Again, nobody would go to bars because that would be exhausting. And yet we tend to think, because we were misled into believing this, that there are certain drugs that every single time we use them qualifies as misuse. And again, as somebody who studies this, as somebody who works in these populations, I can tell you from absolute firsthand experience, uh, some of the most brilliant and motivated and successful people I know are active drug users. And it's because that is flat out false. You you can use safely, you can use mindfully, and you don't you don't necessarily get addictive. Here's here's the, the fact I'm gonna drop on you. It's gonna blow everyone's minds. <laughs> Research has shown that the percent of people who use drugs who will ever struggle with addiction, and I'm talking about all substances, everything from PCP to everyday alcohol, is roughly 8%. 8%. And yet, if you would believe some of the things we were taught in, let's say, dare or just say no, or the way that some authorities talk about this, you would think it's 100%. You would think that every person who ever shoots heroin, I was taught in my classroom that if you use heroin once, you're going to get addictive. Again, science is saying that is just not true. There is no truth in that whatsoever. Uh, and again, as going back to what you and I were talking about earlier in, in the, the algorithm of addiction, we know that's not true. So challenge these things that you that you think you know because you were, again, either intentionally or, or, or unintentionally misled by someone who thought they were telling you the, the right thing and they were just wrong. And start researching this on your own. Start listening to people who are actually doing the science today. Again, this is the third time I'm going to say his name now, but Dr. Carl Hart, who is the leading researcher on drug use in in terms of the um, actual, uh, the chemical component, what happens in our brain, what happens in our bodies. His research is showing, guys, this just isn't true. It's never been true. Those numbers were fabricated out of of full cloth. Uh, The science never showed that. And what's fascinating is that, even at the time our government was saying this back in the 70s and, and, and so on, their own reporting, which has since come out, and, and I'm reading it in book form right now, which is how nerdy I am that I read scientific reports from the 70s and for fun, but their own reporting showed this wasn't true. And yet it made more sense for the narrative to keep pushing these these ideas. So, uh, you know, not all mis- not all use is misuse is one of my favorite facts to drop on people because it's super important. Now, I just want to get this reiterated because that is an astonishing thing you just said that I wasn't aware of. And I just want to make sure I understand you correctly. You're saying that out of everybody who uses drugs, only about 8% are misusers. No, only about 8% will struggle with addiction. Only about 8% will struggle with addiction. And, okay. and and misuse is a bigger category because, again, you know, that kid who binge drinks on the weekend is, is misusing uh, alcohol. Okay. But full-blown medical addiction, somewhere between 4 and 8% of users. And so when you see things like uh, the news report that focuses on the encampment under the bridge and they're like, this is what happens when you use heroin. No, that is a very scary example of what happens when you have trauma and you are using a drug that can help heal that trauma, but is also not always the most safest to use. However, we that stigma keeps people from talking about their drug use. And so 
you know, I, I have a good friend who actually works for me. He's doing a project with me and he is a drug user and he talks about how the biggest, the, the worst thing about using drugs, he's, he's a heroin user, was the fact that he can't find a job because if you Google his name, his journalistic writings come up and it's all about using drugs. And so people have told him flat out, we can't hire you. He got denied for a job at CVS, not because he's a, you know, a guy huddled in the corner because of his addiction, but just because he uses the drug at all. Hmm. Okay. So, so four to 8% of people who use drugs struggle with medical addiction. That's what you're Correct. saying. Okay. Correct. Now I have a couple more questions. Do you, do you have time? I'm I'm love. I, what have we been talking about? Five minutes. I'm feeling good. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. And, you know, because you're saying things and then they're, they're bringing other questions to my head. So I, I just want to talk about cannabis because I have a friend in his 50s whose daughter was actually institutionalized because of cannabis induced psychosis. And he was saying that the cannabis today is not the cannabis of his youth. And he said that there's they're putting other stuff in there. It's it's a different kind of cannabis now. And so he has a very and he's Jamaican, by the way, <laughs> you know, and I was very surprised to hear that he was he had such issues with it because I, I was like, oh, you're Jamaican. I just thought you all loved cannabis. You know, <laughs> that was just my own ignorance, you know, and he's telling me his daughter was actually institutionalized for cannabis induced psychosis. And I've also heard other people who struggled with heroin who said that they looked at cannabis as a gateway drug. So what are your thoughts on that? Because you seem to kind of have a positive view of cannabis. So I'm sure you've heard of cannabis as the gateway drug. Well, what are your thoughts on that? Uh, wow. So a couple of different things there. First, number one, I'm so sorry for your buddy's daughter uh, and for your, your your buddy's family. I mean, as someone who we need, we haven't even talked about uh, <laughs> my own, you know, low points, but like, I spent time at a mental institution 12 years ago when I was at my lowest point struggling with addiction. It's awful. It tears a family apart. And so I'm so sorry for your fam your buddy, his entire family. That is traumatic. Sort of addressing that point first, number one, in, in cannabis-induced sort of um, uh, uh, mental health problems can be exasperated by a lot of things. Going back to the dopamine conversation we had earlier, Anything that changes your, the way your brain is sort of firing can induce these issues. Unfortunately, for, for many people, the easiest way to do it is using substances, right? You know, I could go out and run five miles as a runner. I, I The runner's high is a real thing. I love it. Or I could take one hit of weed, right? So in terms of the, the ease of use, mm. uh, that is 100% a real thing. But I guess the, the 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 larger point is not the the actual result of it, but it's just the accessibility. Because if she was struggling with these issues of mental health, it, cannabis cannot induce this in anyone. There's nothing in cannabis that that will make you suddenly have mental health issues. That's that's not real. However, if you do have underlying mental health issues, it can one thousand percent inflame them. I mean, that was happening with me, right? I had underlying mental health concerns. I was given chemicals and they exploded. So that can happen with any chemical and cannabis is one of those chemicals. To your buddy's point, he is not wrong whatsoever. It's not though that they're putting other things in it. And I've got a, a really good friend who runs a cannabis brand and 
he was educating me on this because I, I didn't know much about this. I've, I've only grown cannabis for fun. Uh, but he was telling me, think of it this way. If back in the 60s, we had all of a sudden invented beer, right? Oh, my God, this, this drink is incredible. Well, 50 years later, 60 years later, we would have moved on from that. Yeah, beer's great. But there's this other thing that's 10 times as potent, also has delicious flavor, and we can sell it for more money. It's called whiskey. Whiskey mm -hmm. is just as easy to make as beer, but people will buy it because it gets you screwed up real quick and <laughs> it tastes good. So in this environment that we are currently in, where cannabis all of a sudden is legal in many places, if you are in a capitalist, as our country is, are you going to sell beer or are you going to sell whiskey, right? You can charge more, but the, the downside is you're the person who doesn't know any better and maybe thinks they're drinking beer is actually drinking whiskey. And all of a sudden they're absolutely screwed up off of one hit of cannabis, right? So that's what's happening in the cannabis market today. It's because that that is the, the, the it, tale as old as time, supply and demand. The demand is mostly for cannabis that is so strong, it's gonna knock you out. And so what are the suppliers doing? They're producing this incredibly strong brand of cannabis. However, that is not true for everybody. My buddy's brand uh, does not do that because they don't believe that that is safe. They don't believe it is ethical. Um, I don't smoke that stuff. I don't have a, a strong enough tolerance. I don't want to take one hit and be comatose. That sounds horrible to me. I would rather smoke something that's going to help me relax a little bit and I can actually enjoy. So again, I am the beer drinker in this scenario. I don't want to mess with your hard stuff. But but also, if we if you don't know where it's coming from, if your buddy is just like, hey, man, I got this weed and you don't know any better, all of a sudden you're going to be blitzed out of your mind. And if you have underlying mental health conditions that you aren't aware of, which, by the way, for a significant po a portion of our population, mental health struggles begin in the late teens or early 20s. That's why so many people end up struggling with addiction in that time period, because that is when their, their mental health is at its most fragile. And what do we do to them? We send them through this meat grinder that is higher education, right? And so that is why we see this in, in this population so strongly. It, that's just the way our brains are working, right? They're, they're, they're evolving and we're hitting this point in late adolescence, early adulthood, where it is at its most unstable and that's when things flare up. And so if people aren't aware of the these problems and they're doing things like adding high levels of chemicals to it. Yeah, you're going to see problems uh, like your buddy's daughter. And again, I, I can only say there that I am so sorry uh, that they are going through this because I've been there and it is incredibly traumatic for everybody involved. Um, and, and I hope I hope that that turns out okay. There, there was a second part of your question that I wanted to address, and I don't remember what the, the second part of your question. Cannabis as a gateway drug. Yes. Oh my God. <laughs> One of my favorite topics to talk about. So this report that I'm reading right now, again, this is how nerdy uh, I am that I'm reading a government report from 1971. One of the things that studied was this question because that that idea has been persistent. Uh, no matter how hard scientists fight it, 
it continues to live on. And at some point, our scientists went, I'm kind of done fighting this. And so <laughs> you don't hear a lot of defense of this anymore, not because it's, it, they think it's true and they should give in, but our scientific community is just like, we're done. This is exhausting fighting this idea. Um, there's never been any truth to that. Uh, and in fact, uh, I love this so much. I, I, I haven't been able to tell anybody about this on, a, on an interview, so I'm going to say it now. That I just I found the table in this report where they showed uh, in the people of their population that they were studying what percent went on to use other drugs after using each substance. And they included everything. This is so funny to me. They included everyone, everything from people who started at heroin and went on to other things um, or, or not to starting with glue, like sniffing glue <laughs> right, right. and went on to other things. Do you want to guess which two substances showed zero correlation as being quote unquote gateways to other drugs? Just go ahead and tell me. <laughs> well, it was glue. Uh, <laughs> nobody who sniffed glue went on to other drugs. In fact, what they said in the study was that the reason people were sniffing glue is because they couldn't get other drugs, right? right? If you can get other drugs, why would you sniff glue? So that's number one. The other one was cannabis. And the reason is, uh, kind of going back to what I was saying earlier, drugs react to, uh, you react to drugs in different ways. Cannabis has a very different response to the body then heroin, then PCP, then meth. And so if you're smoking cannabis, it's because you want to kick back, you want to feel good, you want to relax, um, or you want to you be creative, right? That's not why you're shooting heroin. That's not why you're sniffing, um, you know, uh, cocaine. That's not why you're smoking meth. So this idea was, was created, and this report shows this, the, the history of this idea, because they like, this was like, it got under somebody's skin, like in this, and they were like, we want to address this full stop. And it, they showed the history, the etymology of this idea. And it came from a talking point on an anti-cannabis legislation from like the early 1900s. And it stuck around because it was convenient, because it was an easy thing to say, like, yes, you know, all of these things that you're saying about cannabis could be true. Yes, it's not as dangerous as we thought. Yes, it's not. Um, it, it's a cheaper drug. Yes, it's it's you know, more easily accessible. But we all know that it's a gateway to harder drugs. And as this report showed, that was never true. And it was only used because they couldn't think of any other ways to keep saying we should keep this illegal without <laughs> saying, well, the reason we should keep it illegal is because it makes people want to use other drugs. So it it is not true. Full stop. The science shows this. Uh, and the reason we don't hear uh, defense of that much anymore is that the people smarter than me just got tired of fighting this. They were like, guys, we have all this mountain of evidence that shows this isn't true, but you're not even caring. So why should I keep fighting this? Right. And, and I was suppose that people who did start on marijuana moved on to other drugs, not because of the marijuana, but because of their underlying issues yeah so dealing with this again this report showed that for for the slim population who tried marrow cannabis is sort of the scientific word but yes marijuana is is the, the street word for it who, who 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 tried marijuana first before anything else it was just accessibility it wasn't you know i'm gonna try this and now that i've tried this i'm gonna try other things but a vast majority it was like n over 99 percent of people who used cannabis because it is so readily available mm -hmm. stuck with cannabis 
or or didn't use anything else after that. And so there was a very small, you know, scientifically, uh, what, what is the word, um, significant population, but it was so minute. Um, and it was uh, all of those people said that the reason they used it first was accessibility. It had nothing to do with, oh, well, I'm going to try this and now I'm going to try something else. Right. No, that, that makes perfect sense to just keep it uh, in the limelight <laughs> and, and try to form new narratives about it. So that actually right. makes a lot of sense. So I want to talk about something that I actually think is it's a really important thing. And I've been waiting for the 2020 death statif- uh, statistics to come out and CDC released some provisional ones. So I read, first of all, that suicide fell out of the top 10 in CDC's death statistics in 2020. Yet, you know, there was an extra like 500 something thousand deaths um, in 2020. The shocking thing, though, was that 377,000 was COVID related, 126,000 extra deaths from the previous year were not COVID related. And that bugged me out because I'm like, this is 126,000 extra deaths that are not COVID related. So, you know, so don't quote me on this. I'm just imagining some of those extra deaths are probably due to unintentional overdose. I don't know for sure because it's just provisional. They didn't like break everything down yet. But, you know, what are your thoughts on the pandemic's overall impact on mental health and drug misuse over the last couple of years? Well, so a couple of things. Number one, uh, I, I, first off, thank you for saying misuse. I, I appreciate that. But there, <laughs> there are people, and, and I sort of at times fall into this camp, who say that using drugs in the midst of a generational pandemic that is killing people in your life uh, as a way of escapism isn't misuse, it's intended use. And I see their point. And in, in, in certain circumstances, I, I think that's accurate. You know, if if I am a person who, let's say I'm, I'm, I'm a person who is qualified as a quote unquote frontline worker, right? And I don't mean are brave nurses and doctors. I mean, uh, the guy at, you know, who's a checkout person at CVS, who is qualified as a frontline worker because we had to keep CVS open. Uh, he was not given any protective de- uh, 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 devices. He wasn't given a, a, a you know, a N95. He wasn't given any of the, the stuff that we give in hospitals to protect people who are coming into contact with people with COVID. Uh, he's just expected to go to work. He's also not given a bump in pay. And so he's still making seven twenty five an hour. And then you go home and you're just like, this is miserable. What do I have to help me check out for a while? I mean, I don't fault that guy for using drugs. In fact, I, I would say that if you're using it safely, especially if it's a harmless one, like, like you know, uh, something like cannabis or uh, in many cases, um, you know, a low level of psilocybin. And I, and I mean harmless in that sense, not in the in the to, to stigma, uh, stig, uh, add stigma to other drugs. I mean, the way it, 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 it um, affects your body in the way that it's easy to acquire and know that there is no other uh, adulteration in the drug. Um, heroin, for a perfect example, if you're buying heroin on the street today, you're not actually buying heroin. Uh, there's a, there's probably a little bit of heroin in there. Uh, it's mostly fentanyl. And if you don't have a fentanyl test strip, or even if you do, you have no idea how much is in there, and you're there's a good chance you're going to overdose. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I say safe, I mean 
you know, we're not, despite what you may have read on the news, they're not mixing fentanyl and cannabis. That's, that's not a thing. You know, psilocybin is psilocybin. There's nothing mixed in with it uh, unless you're buying it in a powder form, which I would say, don't use that. That's, that's who knows what that is. Um, But if you're eating a mushroom, you know, it's a mushroom. No one's, no one's telling you this is a mushroom and it's actually something else. Right. So, in that sense, the use is completely justified because, good Lord, I can't imagine what that guy's life is like right now. On the flip side of that, the reason that overdoses spiked over this last year is that people were using behind closed doors. And again, when when we have a drug supply as just downright disgusting as, as we do in this country. Uh, if, if you're buying heroin off the street, again, it's probably adulterated. If you're buying pills, that's the, the, the other thing that's finally getting a little bit of focus. You know, people think they're buying Percocet and it's not, it's fentanyl. It's, it's something else. You know, the, the, the big thing here in Philly recently was, uh, if, if people thought they were using heroin, they were actually using a tranquilizer, uh, and, and the overdoses skyrocketed because people thought that, this was heroin. I know how to use heroin. It wasn't heroin. And all of a sudden you're zonked out. Uh, it's horrible. So if you're doing this and instead of, let's say, at a party with a bunch of people who can call 911 if you overdose or uh, can give you um, a Narcan uh, and bring you back from an overdose if, if you overdose, you're doing this in your home. No wonder overdoses are going to skyrocket. And all of these people were doing it without that person who can be their safety net, right? If you're a person who was working a job, let's say at a nightclub, and all of a sudden your nightclub closes for a year and you lose your apartment, you move home with your parents, and your parents don't know how to bring you back if you overdose because unlike your former roommates, who were all people that you used with, your parents don't know anything about Narcan, and you overdose and your mom finds you, there's nothing she can do. She calls 911. By the time they get there, you're dead. So this is why we saw so many more deaths over the last couple of years is that nothing changed in the sense of drug, uh, the people who use drugs, although more people probably were using, those numbers are hard to, to, to know for sure. What did change is how use uh, changed. And, and in many ways, it was uh, increasingly unsafe. Um, and, and the stigma is a big part of that, right? You know, imagine a perfect world where you could tell your, your, your mom in that situation, hey, this is what I use to, to you know, zonk out for a couple of hours because life is miserable right now and this makes me feel better. And you can't access mental health care because there's not enough mental health conditions in this country. So you use heroin. Uh, and by the way, mom, if I overdose, here's how you bring me back. And uh, <laughs> would you mind sitting with me while I inject to make sure I don't overdose, right? But that's not a situation that that we have. Well, I did want you to give you the opportunity to just talk about your, the Choose Your Struggle podcast as well as the Rock Bottom Storytellers event. So, what, what can you tell us about that? Yeah, so sort of the, the the short version of of where we left off with my story was, you know, when I gave up hope in the summer of two thousand nine, I attempted suicide twice and then overdosed the second day. Um, I, I love telling this part real quick because it, it's just, it's funny to me, but it's also really sad to me. Uh, in this country, when somebody overdoses, we call 911. And until recently, that meant pretty much the, the chances of you getting an ambulance or a healthcare worker were very low. Uh, more likely, you were going to get a cop. And that happened to me in 2009. Uh, a, a policeman showed up at my door. Uh, I was going into overdose and he slapped handcuffs on me and led me out of my house. And the last thing I remember before blacking out in full blown overdose 
was having my head bounced off the side of his cop car as he roughly threw me in the backseat. Mm. So uh, I spent that night handcuffed to a bed at a hospital, uh, woke up the next day in an intake center out of a lockdown unit. I'd been taken there while blackout and uh, spent the next three weeks in a lockdown unit, the next three months in a long-term care facility, what we would have called a mental institution 50 years ago. And then got and then checked myself out, went through what's called step down detox. It's the opposite of cold turkey over about four months and restarted my life. Yet for the next five years, I was not healthy, right? We have this misconception that you get the person off the drugs and great, now they're all good. Uh, that's not true. It, it took me five years to feel healthy and feel confident again and 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 like I was on stable footing. Mm. And luckily for me, um, not long after I felt that way, I got the opportunity to tell my story on, on stage for the first time and it changed my life. Uh, at the time, I was working in nonprofit fundraising and politics and now that was 2015. Fast forward to now where I do this work full time and help end stigma and promote honest and fact-based education around these topics as you've heard now on this podcast. So uh, since telling that story, I launched Choose Your Struggle and, and then took it full time in 2019. And my business, uh, again, focuses around those two missions of ending stigma and promoting honest and fact-based education. And I do so through a lot of things like this, uh, podcasts, um, uh, going on, you know, talk shows and, 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 you know, being interviewed and just really trying to counterbalance a lot of the awful things that we hear about uh, drug users and people who struggle with their mental health uh, and, and educate too and, and trying to, to replace some of that um, awful and, and uh, downright false information um, with honest and, and fact-based education. Um, I do it through uh, multiple podcasts. Podcast. The Choose Your Struggle podcast is my weekly uh, interview show where I talk with leading experts with lived and learned experience because uh, while I do have a BA in psychology and a bunch of certificates behind my name and all that kind of stuff, not, I, I mean, I don't want to say none of it's important. Please, that, that's not what I'm trying to say. I am saying that while I can tell you what it says in the textbook, I can also tell you what it feels like to be there. And those two things aren't always the same thing. So I, I really like prioritizing people with lived experience so they can actually talk about these things uh, in, in, in a, a person-centered way. Uh, I do have a new show coming out this spring called Made It. Uh, season one focuses on a good friend of mine named Sarah, who is also in recovery and started a nonprofit uh, from the hospital bed the, the last time she uh, well, you'll hear more, but it's a it's a serial show, uh, ten episodes that tells her story over over these ten episodes, sort of like what you'd see on Netflix or something like that. Uh, I do multiple storytelling events where I highlight people with lived experience and, and give them a platform to tell their story because I know how much of a difference it made in my life to tell mine for the first time. Uh, I have a book coming out next year. Uh, I speak all around the country, um, a lot of colleges, um, but also community events and all that kind of stuff. Uh, if you're listening to this and you're like, man, I want this guy to come drop knowledge, uh, reach out, love to come to your community and, and help educate and change the way we talk about drug use and mental health. If you ever need someone to talk to, that is a big part of what I do because I, I just I would never want to know that uh, I I hate getting the stories where someone goes, man, I wish I I would have heard you a year ago because mm -hmm. I would have known how to talk to my friend, right? Um, so a big part of what I do is just taking phone calls and messages from people and jumping on Zoom uh, mm -hmm. because either they're struggling or they know someone and they don't know how to talk about it. They don't know how to be there for that person. So please reach out. You can find me at my websites, which are jshiftman.com and chooseyourstruggle.com. Find me on social media. 
Uh, and please reach out because I, I want to make sure that we do everything in our power to help end uh, the, the just sheer lunacy that is the number of people we lose every year to overdose and suicide. Awesome. And I'm going to make sure I have all your links in the show notes. I did have one last question that I ask every guest. It's just a fun one. Okay. So this is sort of a creative question, but I want to keep with tradition. If you could have any one superpower, Jay, what would it be and why? So uh, you can't really see it behind me. It's kind of right by my head. Uh, but I am a giant fan of Nightcrawler from the X-Men. Um, and uh, so when I used to live in New York, my brother and I would always be standing on a subway platform and when we would see us, the, one of the, the express trains, he would always grab my shoulder and blink, pretending that we were teleporting onto that one. But uh, the reason I would be Nightcrawler is uh, my wife and I are big travelers, hoping to get back to doing that this year uh, if the pandemic is finally behind us. And I've got to tell you, airline travel is like the bane of my existence. So if, if I could just close my eyes and uh, reappear us in you know <laughs> Shanghai or or in Belize or any of these amazing places we want to visit. Oh God, that would the, the amount of stress that would take out of my life would be enormous. That's an awesome one. Teleportation, right? Yes, sir. <laughs> I'm gonna make sure again that your links are in the show notes. Jay, it's been such a fascinating conversation. Thank you so much for sharing your story and coming on the Story King podcast. Thank you so much for having me. This was this was great. So that was my conversation with Jay Schiffman. All of his links will be in the show notes. Don't forget to check out storykingbooks.com. Also, you can follow us on Instagram. The username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips, and quotes from famous authors. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash storykingpodcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You could choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash thestoryking. All those links I just mentioned will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media, subscribing to it, and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, a show about the art and business of storytelling and living life. Please join us next time. Until then.